Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechRents' venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. As always, my name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined by two of the most fine and felicitous humans on the face of the planet. We have Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny from New York, where it is sunny. How are you? It is sunny. That's, that's the best thing that's happened in a week in New York City. That's sad, but we'll take it. All right. We also have <laughs> Natasha Mascarenas coming to us from Jersey, I believe. How are you doing, Tosh? Jersey is great. I'm great because I missed seeing both of you and just having three people on this damn podcast. It is It is actually so much easier to do this show with three than two. Something that I always forget until we only have two. And then I realize you have to talk so much more. You can never like sit back and just relax for a minute. Right. You can't um, even take a bathroom break in the middle of the show. Uh, As you, Danny always does. <laughs> that's never happened. That's complete fabrication. We, we, we can't lie on the news show, I don't think. I think there is actually a rule against that. Anyways, listen, guys, do you want to talk about Apple and all the big stuff that happened this week at the Apple event? No. 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 So if you were hoping for Apple coverage, uh, sucks. If you didn't want to hear about it, great. It's over on TechRange.com. Verizon, our parent company's parent company, showed up with some big fonted 5G. It was the biggest Com- font I've ever seen. If you do want to look into the market reaction that we've posted on TC about the stock prices, past that, we can move on to the future of media. We have a, a cluster of neat stories here that we're going to kick off with a really small kind of seed round, Natasha, I think, for the juggernaut. So please tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so the juggernaut is a company that's kind of been in the works in some form since about 2017. It was a free newsletter started by Snigtha Sir that was focused on South Asian news and analysis. And then they, she saw an opportunity for maybe a paid audience, went to YC. Instead of taking the paid newsletter route, she created a full media publication and brand. Ooh. Yeah, which I was super excited to see for so many reasons. Obviously, it's a South Asian, but also refreshing to see not everyone taking the paid newsletter approach. She kind of chalked that up to thinking that with this kind of news and analysis, it works better to have it as like a network that you can kind of click through and get a broader feel for it instead of living in your inbox once a week, kind of being a everyday tab. And so they raised a 2 million seed round led by Precursor. Yeah, I mean, all good, all good news there. I was very excited to hear about them finally kind of raising their first official chunk of cash. Yeah, so I read your piece about this and I learned a lot of stuff, including that the, the original free newsletter was called Ink Mango, which is actually a really great name. <laughs> I really liked that. I, I think the juggernaut's better, but like it's weird to go from a, gr- a good name to a great name. Usually people go backwards. And then also it's, it's pretty cheap. It's like uh, four bucks a month for an annual or 10 bucks a month if you pay monthly, or you can buy a lifetime for like 250, which I dig. Uh, other people are doing this. Like what's that neoconservative thing over on Substack? Uh, dispatch. The, the dispatch. Dispatch with Jonah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're also doing lifetime memberships. So I think we're seeing innovation on the price points. And I love that this is not a paid newsletter. I love that it's a website, it's a blog. It has content on it. You can go there. Just because I'm an, I'm an old school blog fan, that makes me just very, very happy. Well, I think what's interesting here is, you know, there's millions and millions of Indian Americans, Pakistani Amer- uh, Americans, Bangladeshi Americans, and, you know, traditional media hasn't really served those markets all that well. Many of them are scattered across different regions, so none of the local newspapers cover those in depth. So, for instance, the Juggernaut has covered a lot of Indian and Pakistani restaurants in the Bay Area, not just talking about the fact that the restaurants exist, but the stories of the entrepreneurs behind those restaurants. And And to me, like, there's a great community building function where, you know, similar to what you just mentioned with the Dispatch, and other niche publications, but connecting folks who may not be geographically centered, particularly today with, with coronavirus, but who, who have this sort of identity connection across the country, maybe around the world, and being able to create both a media and a community around a publication. I'll add to, I asked Singtha, I said, let's say the Washington Post or New York Times all of a sudden 
realizes that you're really onto something and starts dedicating their journalists to the beat more often. I'll make a not so perfect parallel of Taylor Lorenz taking on this influencer beat. Maybe an influencer publication wouldn't do as well because it's already a really strong journalist covering it. And Singha said that like a part of her is worried, but then she always goes to like the LinkedIn pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post and realizes that there aren't many resources and there's really nowhere near the focus that she has. I thought that was a great response because I think as a paranoid journalist too, I'm always worried. Yeah, Danny and I have talked about this recently, actually. We've been talking about niche publications versus more generalist publications. And uh, as we think about, you know, our own publication and how it fits into the world, we think about the broader landscape. And I'm actually kind of bullish on the niche side, frankly. I I think that it's great that The Times has Taylor. We all read her stuff. She's fine. It's good. But I think a, a publication that had multiple people driven on one particular thing can really get the most in-depth sourcing. And we've seen this across, for example, the fintech space, where there's a number of niche publications that are all quite good. And so you can also go read those. Now, TC is not going to stop covering fintech. We're going to cover all the startup world that we can. But there is power to to niching down to a, a specific subbeat, if you will, and then kicking the hell out of it. I was just going to bring in one last note on, on that point, Alex, of like Snigda really making a clear stance that they're not planning to translate certain words, not planning to write for, as she describes, kind of the white gaze. And I Damn think that right. was a really smart decision to keep it. You know, people are tired of things being dumbed down. They want smart, thoughtful analytics and they'll pay for that. And so that was also refreshing to me that we're not going to see kind of like a watered down chai recipe on the Woo! juggernaut anytime soon. <laughs> Subtweets only. We need an Uncle Roger for South Asia. <laughs> I don't get that reference, but I want to talk <laughs> I want to talk about the exit market for these things because when I hear about a VC putting money into a media company, politely my alarm bells go off. I'm like, oh no, what's going to happen to this? Is it going to be the next vice that grows and then gets a big valuation and then kind of crumbles? Well, there's a couple of things that have come out recently in the media space that show that there could be appetite for exits in the media world, including the the possible exit of Morning Brew to Business Insider Danny. And I know that Morning Brew is written in your tone and it's written for you as part of the audience. So tell me why this uh, this deal could make some sense. You know, you're t- talking to the person who literally does not drink a Morning Brew and drinks tea, which is a far superior beverage to coffee, I might add. <laughs> But Morning Brew, I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, a group of folks out of uh, University of Michigan basically built out a, a daily newsletter focused on, on stocks. And, and it, was, it was highly voiced. It had a, an opinion. It was direct. And it was sort of this smart brevity. And we're going to get to Axios next. Uh, I, I think the magic here is actually they timed the market extraordinarily well, not only with the rise of email newsletters, but also with Robinhood. All of a sudden, you know, a couple of years ago, we had actually the, the nadir of all time in terms of retail stock holdings. Almost no one actually owned individual stocks. Now people are buying and selling and trading all day long on Robinhood. And so Morning Brew sort of captured, I think, that momentum. And and so we heard from Wall Street Journal some rumors that the company is going to potentially be bought out a, a controlling stake, uh, and that's vague, of more than 75 million, including performance incentives. And so what I think is interesting is, one, it's bootstrapped. It, it did raise a million dollars of friends and family and fools, uh, the triple F uh, around, but it never raised venture capital funding. So to your point with, with the juggernaut, I do think the VCs can shape the incentives for a lot of the growth in many media companies. Uh, you know, they, they doubled down on what they did best. They, they built out additional newsletters around other topics like technology and, and, and other uh, kind of business adjacent categories. And I, I think it's like similar to, to The Athletic. When you're focused, you have voice, you have really smart people, and you have a very niche identified audience. There's a lot of magic there. And a lot of money. I mean, I, I know some people who have looked into buying ads on Morning Brew or sponsoring the newsletter, whatever that kind of works out to be. And uh, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. Very engaged audience. I want uh, numbers. I, 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 
<laughs> I wish I could. I wish I remembered them, but they were they were high, high in a good way. Like I love to see a media company make money selfishly because this is what I get paid to do. I don't have any other skills by this point. This is the last thing that I'm able to do for money. So I hope there's jobs out there for me to do it. Um, so I, I'm hyped. But the point is, like, it's not like BI is buying a vanity asset that has 48 cents in revenue and loses a bunch of money. It's buying a company that has mostly self-funded, that does generate material incomes. And so the, the, the dollar amount, this $75 million valuation, possibly with incentives added on, makes some sense. And that does provide a little bit of framing for the juggernaut about where it could land it just puts stuff in the market that allow for comps, which help VCs. And I, I think the key piece here is is BI itself, which we haven't talked a lot about on the show, you know, on, a, on an M&A and, and sort of corporate front, but it has a very ambitious strategy. I mean, it wants to double and triple its newsroom. It wants to triple its revenues over the next couple of years. Um, it's well-financed. Uh, a bunch of the German publishers, if I recall, own it. Yep, Axel Springer. Axel Springer. So to me, like, there's a huge opportunity there where if you double down on your niche, double down on what you do best, I think BI really wants to be the, I don't think they're Gen Z, but certainly the millennial Gen X of the Wall Street Journal. And right. the Wall Street Journal still struggles with this this age issue. From what I hear, it's still in the 60s in terms of average age of readers. So, you know, there is really an opportunity for the business economic focused reader to capture that at the at the earlier ages. Totally. I think you're spot on with the ambitious strategy, Danny. I don't remember off the top of my head, but they've made a couple of really high profile hires over the past couple of weeks of editors from huge publications, which people on Twitter are kind of joking about, like, how did you do this? And I don't think it would be crazy if BI bought a data company that tracks startup funding and financing down the road. Like, I think that we see, like, is that I, like I a rumor see monger? BI. Is that like an aggregate? Is that a random Are you willing that like... into existence? I just, I'm very much seeing like a network of BI form and BI like does need to do this. Uh, BI is hiring aggressively. They are looking to staff up. They're very serious about this. They have a strategy around driving subscriptions to their product, building out individual newsrooms, and and they're legit about it. BI has a reputation from 10 years ago for being kind of shitty about like clickbait and like loud headlines and stuff. They, they, they've grown up a lot. And I don't think just as TC shouldn't be judged by its 2008 form, I don't think when it was like one dude shouting at the internet, I don't think that BI should be held to everything that it used to do. Just as BuzzFeed News, super serious versus 2010 BuzzFeed.com, not comparable. So I, I think they're ambitious and again, excited by this as a reporter. But Danny, let's move on to Axios and another success story in the VC backed media world. Axios is a success story. So uh, Axios started a couple of years ago by Jim Vandehey and some of the Politico alums, Mike Allen, who's famous for his playbook. And um, what Axios has really pioneered is the idea of free newsletters. You know, uh, this is not exactly brand new in the sense of the internet, but what they've really managed to figure out is like exactly what to write in a newsletter, exactly the audiences to target, and exactly how to connect the right advertisers to that audience. And so they've actually built upon the massive growth in, in corporate social responsibility budgets, which is a huge part of the revenue. And so what we learned, again, from Wall Street Journal scoop this week, is that the companies are targeting a $58 million revenue year in 2020, that's through the pandemic, and it's actually projected to continue to, to grow 30% next year, and 50% of its revenue comes from newsletter sponsorships. And so to me, like, you know, there was a lot of guessing of like, hey, they're just going to copy the Politico playbook, and that's a joke. They're going to try to double down on what you know Politico did in terms of DC coverage and this fast scooping model. And and as much as we make fun of smart brevity, and I make fun of it all the time, people love smart brevity. They love the but but butts and 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 deeper dive. And a deeper dive is a sentence. Thought bubble. BFD. Exactly. We should do an entire podcast of smart brevity. You know, media gets all this these knocks. 
I think the 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 message here is you're looking at the juggernaut. It's it's getting interesting fundraising in a compelling audience. You have Morning Brew, which has really proved out kind of an individual newsletter, and that there's value to another publication. And then Axios is showing that you can make a lot of money in this category. So to me, there's actually a really positive media story, and that's not something we've seen for a long time something that gets lost in kind of like the glam of paid newsletters is that these free newsletters are democratizing this information in ways that all the paywalls will not at a certain point. Like I also am pro journalist making a lot of money and it's I'm happy to see that you can do that while also reaching the most people. The paywall dynamic, I think, like consistently is something that we think about. We talk about within TC and EC on like, what's the story you paywall or what's the story that's kind of public good and should not we should not be charging people to read. Yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean, like, I mean, just to be kind of candid about you know TC's evolution to being a, a also a, a publication with a paid element is we're still figuring out where to draw that line, and uh, not all the decisions you make are popular with people both inside and outside. It, it is a balance to strike. It is not easy, nor is it trivial. But uh, before we move on from media onto some mental health startup stuff in the app world and revenues, we have to talk about former guest of the show, Mr. Tesla himself, Mr. Roloff Botha. Danny, there is a tweet that we need to read, and I was curious if you could be our spokesperson for the VCs. Well, Roloff po- posted a tweet this week that was basically like, the New York Times is subscription models of Faustian bargain. By making it a subscription product, they're basically creating an echo chamber of people who are like-minded. You know, they're capturing this niche. And the implication is, is that the New York Times, you know, is becoming more and more biased because it is a subscription publication, because it has to serve, you know, the liberal Manhattanite readers that theoretically sort of buy this. And to me, this just like was sort of breathtaking because I seem to recall not so long ago that all the criticism was about ads and how much that ads, you know, screwed up the incentives for media to be sensational, to be ridiculous, to do all this sort of stuff. And then subscription was supposed to work well. Apparently now subscription is also bad. So I'm actually not sure like what media model is not is not going to lead to like persistent criticism. But but I I thought it was extraordinarily fascinating. It reminded me of an article one of my ex friends, if you will, wrote uh, (laughs) long long ago acquaintance uh, Nathan Robinson is the the editor in chief of Current Affairs who wrote an article that was like the lies are free but the truth is paywalled. Yeah. And and like at the end of the day, you know, it costs money to produce news. It costs money to analyze the news. It takes salaries it takes travel budgets it's a, it's a lot of work some way that has to be funded and you know if you want the lies to go away someone somewhere has to pay and it might be an advertiser through their corporate social responsibility budget it might be you as a subscriber somewhere has to be funding otherwise you are going to get q on videos on youtube although that was blocked i think an hour ago so maybe you won't oh i missed that news story that's good news because after facebook blocked q on groups kind of writ large that's a good follow-up i think that this tweet is ridiculous and I, I find it very annoying that rich people constantly shit on people who are in the world of trying to explain what's going on and dig a little deeper and i'm just essentially very bored with the the criticism of media by tech people tasha over you and this is just your like annual reminder that if you need to take a break from twitter you should definitely take a break from twitter because the loudest voices and most amplified voices are often incorrect and so if you see this tweet and get frustrated, maybe just close it for a little bit. There's, de- there's, de- there's definitely a number of Teslas to number of tweets. Ratio. Correlation on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, we're yes. going to get in trouble again. But That's you fun. know what? When we talk about breaks from mental health, which you should definitely take by getting off of Twitter, this is a week for mental health startups because there have been so many fundings and announcements. I, I love the first one here called Calm, which has been around, I think, a couple of years. And it is in that category along with Headspace of like big unicorn companies kind of owning the wellness and mental health category. Natasha, do you want to talk a little bit about Calm? 
Yeah, so Katie Roof at Bloomberg broke the news that Com is seeking funds at a 2.2 billion valuation, which is wild. It's raised about 143 million so far and last was valued at 1 billion. So this will be doubling that. That is an insane growth story, especially because Headspace is not a small competitor. It's not like Com has no competition out for it. Headspace, you know, also recently raised 93 million in equity and debt. And it's trying to do something very similar. I mix them up in my head all the time. There's a lot of work to still be done. And a 2.2 billion valuation means that Com is getting something really right, I assume. Yeah, and sensor tower data kind of shows us how big the space is getting. So according to that, that particular uh, data source, in 2019, the, the mental health category did about $159 million in revenue on the App Store, up 52% from 2018. And of course, it's larger in 2020. We also have some uh, some data about the number of downloads. I think comps like 3.9 million downloads in a recent month. So it's still driving lots and lots of uh, of new people into the service. I, I think 2020 has been really hard on folks. So I'm not surprised to see this sort of app do well. I've been thinking about getting back into meditation lately because I don't know about y'all, but there's an election on that is slightly stressful. So I, I'm struggling. I, I'm just stoked though to see these apps do well. And I think it goes to show also how big the app store economy has become. This is no longer a place where games make some money and nothing else works. These are unicorn companies that could go public just on the back of App Store revenue. And Danny, you know, they're giving a lot of money to Apple, but they've shown that these products have longevity and also a lot of in-market usability. Well, what I think is incredible, I mean, you, you mentioned the calm numbers. So that, that was 3.9 million in just April, right? In, in yeah, the, April, the media post-pandemic uh, period, um, Headspace was number two with 1.5 million. That was sensor tower data. To me, what's amazing here, though, is that was a million new app installs for Calm in just one month. Right, which which I believe Calm is mostly focused on the United States market. So you're talking like a serious percentage of, of literally the people in the country downloading these apps, spending money on these apps. To me, that is a massive growth category. And I think we're only at the beginning, which is a good sign for, for I guess it's Koa, which is a startup we, we, we talked about this week. Natasha, you, you, you interviewed the company and, and talked to them. Yeah, so Koa is a new company that is kind of bringing the model of small group fitness to mental health and emotional workouts. And so, you know, we can, I, I actually really want your guys' takes on it. I personally feel like when I heard the idea, I was like, will people be vulnerable in a room with other people in their city? If this opens up in my neighborhood, when I eventually move back to San Francisco, would I go? Because my former boss also lives in my neighborhood. Probably wouldn't go, but I do <laughs> like the idea of accessing more mental health. The classes start at $25. And so to me, that was like a nice accessible price point. I love the opening line to your story, which was, when was the last time you worked out your soul? And then I was like, <laughs> that actually got me to pause. And, and I'm sure it, it influenced your reading times on our oh, dashboard. That, that gives me a great compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to me, it was like a, a really interesting question, which is like, you know, obviously I'm in a, a knowledge economy job. Like I spent a lot of time engaging my brain on new concepts, new ideas, learning new markets, et cetera. And then you, you ask a question that's like, it's like, I've never done that. I, I do nothing. I mean, it's like chicken soup for the soul. I don't eat the chickens. I, I, I haven't had chicken soup for my soul in, in, in years. So I thought it was a really interesting question. They are pre-launch, though. And I think it's important to recognize that they're, they're putting together the service. They've raised capital. But, but the actual service itself, according to them, is, is not ready to go yet um, because they're going to have licensed therapists. And I think there's a little bit of logistics there. But, but Alex, you were going to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah, just that I think it's great to have uh, a way to have more access to therapy in whatever form. I mean, I, I, I'm currently about to start therapy with a new therapist this weekend, and it's been a bit of a saga to find one in my area who is taking new patients. And, you know, I live in just a town. I don't live in any place particularly large or small, kind of in the middle. 
And it's hard because there's just not enough people out there. So I, uh, I'm excited to see access open to more therapists for more people. And I'll add that, like, I think while I was joking earlier that I would be scared to run into someone I know, COA has kind of like a framework of sources it's planning to give potential customers, including one-to-one therapy, private sessions. And so, you know, when I used to go to small group fitness classes like yoga, I would literally be there for the beginning affirmations and kind of the pep talk. And like, I joke in the story, but like sometimes you do shed a tear while doing SoulCycle and sometimes you do get a little misty. And so, um, you know, I think Ko is trying to like capitalize on a little bit of like the energy behind being around other people and like being mindful. I, I mean, I've been to SoulCycle. It nearly made me cry. So yeah, I've been there. Danny, sorry, you're about to say something. I, I, I'm just happy that that is a good sign that you should be long SoulCycle in the public markets. People or just are having long, long a religious Peloton. revival. The, the next great uh, revival of, of religiosity in the United States is, is no, no, SoulCycle. No. I'm but in I, pain. I'm in pain from SoulCycle. It's <laughs> making me cry because I was not in shape for that class. And it's an hour long. And there's a lot of peer pressure in the room. You can't like unclip from your bike. As oh the my one God, person how leave. dare you? No, you and then you the can, person you shouts you. That. They're like, get you out of your saddle. Just, just get out of the set. Just, just walk around and eat some chocolate. Or because something. I was, you know, it was years ago before I had as much. I don't know. You, you have to remember when I was growing up. I took gym class and we learned poker. Like that was what my gym class was. I took, I took, took recreational, like individual gym, and what they taught us was like literally hearts and poker. We were sitting Where in the gym on the school? floor with, with like. 52 yeah, card decks. Did you go to high school in Vegas? Minneapolis. <laughs> Minneapolis. <laughs> Minnesota. Minnesota. Look, the winters alone make thing. you hearty. You don't need a gym class to make it do that. <laughs> but I will point out one last thing here before we move on to playbook. What I thought was interesting about COA was the fact that they actually have these more dynamic topics for classes. So for two examples, how to live alone during a pandemic, which I thought was very interesting, and then how to deal with political anxiety. You brought up the election. But I, I do think that there's a world where you know, there's all kinds of different reasons why people have, you know, wellness concerns or mental health concerns. And so I think it's just interesting to see a much more diverse kind of menu of ways to connect on therapy that I think is very valuable. But let's move on to, to playbook, which is, yeah. is more fitness than mental health. Yeah. So uh, Jordan Crook covered this for us. Playbook is a fitness platform that is kind of a place for creators in the fitness space to put their stuff onto it and attract an audience to it. And then playbook is kind of the platform on which they they exist. So if you are a trainer or something else kind of in that physical space playbook is a place where you can go and kind of like accrue students and make money doing it raised 9.3 million dollars money comes from eventures michael ovitz because it's kind of a talent agency if you will abstract algae ventures porsche ventures that caught my eye and fj labs and in my thinking about this natasha is that because of the pandemic all the studios are closed a lot of folks who made their living off having people show up and do kind of like team sweat need a place where they can go and kind of sell their skills, expertise, and classes in a digital way, and they're not all going to make their own app. So Playbook wants to stand in and kind of give them that space. And I, I think it's smart and bullish if they can attract enough actual attendees. That's my question. And I think that's the big, yeah, going to be the big reason if a startup fails or succeeds here. I've seen a couple of these companies launch during this time. So I wasn't super excited when I heard of a new one raising money, to be honest. Like there was one that I talked to a couple months ago that was out of the chrysalis program of Clio Capital that was just helping, you know, fitness, fitness creators create like host and have online classes, aka making their own little class passes. And so it, it all makes sense. And it's, it's honestly not too hard of a concept to get your head around. And so I think it'll be I guess if anyone really thinks of an innovative way to actually get customers, like you said, Alex, it'll probably be something worth writing about or tracking. Well, just a, a last teeny thing on this. The, the, the idea that they're doing is 
the people who are fitness influencers, for lack of a better phrase, will bring the people along with them. And if they make the platform for easy monetization, it'll work. So they're focusing a lot on the supply side, expecting the supply to bring the demand. It's kind of like 1980s Republican economics, but inside of a fitness app, it's supply side. So that's my uh, that's my take on this. Danny, can you please transition us from this into the world of VC fundraisers, please? Well, we've talked about the juggernaut COA playbook. Tons of startups are raising funding. And the good news is, if you were worried that the VC industry was going to die off, this is a week at which you are definitely been proven wrong. So there are so many new funds from VC firms all across the valley. I mean, there's just, there's literally so much money flowing into the industry. We have six new funds announced or are closed this week. So I'm going to burn through some of them and then we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. But OpenView, based out in Boston, growth stage fund, raised $450 million, closed. That's its sixth fund. Canaan Ventures raised $800 million, focused on uh, health tech. And that is both early and growth. True Ventures raised $840 million for its early stage fund, which seems like a gargantuan amount of money for that stage. Lead Edge Capital raised $950 million for growth, and that closed. And then we had two new fund uh, announcements with filings with the SEC. First round is raising its eighth flagship fund, $220 million target. And finally, Kosla with the only $1.1 billion, the only billion-dollar mega fund this week, its seventh fund targeting $1.1 billion. So Huge amounts of money. I mean, that that alone is almost four or five billion dollars in capital, mostly at the early to mid growth stage. That's like hundreds of startup investments right there. Oh, it's, hundreds and hundreds. It's funny because I feel like we usually don't try and give too much time on our shows to like talk about new funds because like what else can you say other than they raised? But this week it just we the section just kept getting bigger with each new SEC filing or story. It was just like, okay, well, I'll just add another nine figure fund to this section <laughs> are there going to be more are there going to be more vc funds or SPACs this week bet is basically what the tech crunch newsroom is like these days that's the worst <laughs> over under of all time uh the only thing that i want to grab from all of those uh, i covered the open view stuff but the most interesting thing was from kanan baha ibrahim a, a partner over there well-known investor she said something in the bloomberg story that really caught my eye she said these are probably the highest prices that we've seen in the last 20 years talking about startups in venture, but at the same time, the exit environment is incredibly strong right now. So VCs know they're paying up a lot. It's a bit like buying public equities, very expensive right now. But the impression that VCs have is that they will find exits for them. And uh, I'm hearing that there's going to be a rash of IPO filings in the first two weeks of December. There's going to be a rash of IPO filings in Q1. So there's going to be a lot more liquidity coming up. And uh, that plus some acquisitions has made everyone bullish. So I think we're going to see a lot more new VC funds than next week. I bet we have the same section again, with just different names. So just to add a little bit more color to this dynamic, Charles Hudson of Precursor Ventures told me that, you know, usually before the election, we see a slowing of sorts around VC activity. This year, he's not really seeing any slowing. Usually people are kind of finishing up the deals. So during the holidays, no one's thinking about funding. He said that the real activity he's seeing, though, is coming from all these new funds. VCs are perhaps expecting uncertainty, to say the least, after the election, regardless of the winner. And so they're trying to finish up these fundraises super fast. And so, yeah, Alex, we're definitely going to have this section probably until like November 3rd and then never talk about a new fund after. Until like, you know, December 13th. Like, well, we'll slip it in right before Christmas. Um, <laughs> I think that's enough on on VCs raising. But we do have one more news item in the VC category. And then we're going to blast through just a couple of quick things before we wrap. But Natasha, tell me about Terry Burns. So Terry Burns, who let's just pause and say is 26 years old, 26, 
she is two years older than me. Um, she works at GV, formerly known as Google Ventures, and has become their first black female investing partner, which is an insane jump from before kind of being at the firm, I believe, for only three years, two to three years, and then being promoted to partner. Huge move. Huge move. I'll just pause there because I think that just deserves like an insane kudos. It does. But this also brings us to the first game of the show, which is the fact that she's put money into a thing called the Hags app. And uh, we're very curious if Danny knows what Hags means. Danny? Well, f- first of all, why don't we describe the app a little bit? Please, please. And then I'm going to, well, I was told that it is a Gen Z yearbook for Gen Z, which, which to <laughs> me makes no sense because all yearbooks are usually targeted at the same generation of people. Like, is there really like a millennial yearbook for like pick baby me, boomers? Pick me. Yeah. <laughs> Natasha, can you explain this for us? Yes. So I talked to the co-founders actually before they raised from GV. So when they were kind of pre-launch, the CEO, Surya Shivji is 23 years old. She built it with her younger brother, Jamil, who's 18, and their co-founder, James Dale, who's 19. And it's kind of a play on high school groups. So when I was in high school, a lot of the group dynamics happened in Facebook, if at all. This is kind of trying to create a more like old school play on high school groups and give them a place to talk and chat. And so their first product as that broader vision was a virtual senior yearbook of sorts that would let you sign people. They worked with Snapchat. They worked with other developers. And it was super promising. I highly recommend you read more about the story. And Terry Burns kind of led the investment in that app. And so if that was kind of indicative of what she's going to be bringing to the GV team in terms of investments. I'm excited. We're going to see definitely some more Gen Z tools being invested in that are, you know, actually have some legs, perhaps. Great. Now, Danny, with that introduction, what is Hags? I'm going to go with huge, awesome, generational social app. Natasha, what does it actually mean? Have a great summer. There we go. It's the thing It's the thing everyone writes in everyone else's yearbook because they have nothing else to say. If you don't really know somebody, you're like, have a good Summer, Bill, Billy, Bill, Billy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just sign it. Just sign it with your name. Be like, like, like that's what you like do. Senior year. Have a great summer and life. I used to write that. Have a great life. Oh, so I love I'm, that. I'm Hagel, which is actually Hagel is actually a kind of a good name for an app that I would produce myself. So I you knew go. you were gonna haggle the Hagel. I knew it. Uh, well, moving on from German philosophy to something we're a gonna little get bit around closer. Now. To, yeah, we're gonna. Danny, you can't interrupt my beautiful segue with your crappier segue. Like that's, that's why we take turns doing segues. But please, Danny, please take it away. Make your joke. No, I, I, I've already made the joke. The joke is right, well, ruined. Let's get around to get around $140 million Series E. Natasha, I believe you heard about this. Car, I can't stop laughing. Okay. They are a car sharing rental platform that basically lets you rent cars from other people in the city and, and kind of do day trips, et cetera, et cetera. There's a ton of these companies. They saw their they've, they've had their own set of struggles, like they laid off people in January and then again in March um, because bookings dropped because no one wanted to leave their houses during quarantine. Now we're kind of seeing a rebound. Their revenue has doubled compared to last year and they kind of have rehired as of May 1st. They've rehired most of the people they once furloughed with all that growth. The CEO, Sam Zaid, said that they raised a 140 million Series E And I think we're kind of seeing that same kind of momentum in short-term travel with Airbnb. The Wall Street Journal had a great piece about Airbnb kind of pulling itself back from the brink by refocusing. And so it's it's refreshing to see kind of these ideas actually show up in numbers and data. 
Yeah, I think what's interesting here is, you know, get around is really doubling down on its own business model, right? You know, people were afraid to leave their homes. And then people were like, actually, being in a car driving around is kind of the only thing we can do right now. We can go to a drive-in movie theater. And and so get around is doubling down on its own business. What's interesting with Airbnb is it, it sort of flipped its model, right? It's not about travelers anymore. It's not about tourism. Uh, a lot of its bookings are now from locals looking for places to escape either to another neighborhood, another city nearby, a resort. And what's interesting is that they're actually staying longer. So instead of like that two or three day business trip or that four or five day like vacation, people are, from what I hear, are, are actually getting like a month stay through Airbnb, uh, which both saves on the cleaning costs and a lot of the other fees, but also really drives up each of those individual uh, per price points. So to me, like it's actually interesting to see how companies are kind of recovering from the pandemic, but in different ways. Yeah. And just to kind of put a cap on the Airbnb story, expected to list late November, early December. We'll see if the market holds up around maybe $30 billion. Again, we'll see if the market holds up. But certainly we've seen a lot of companies struggle, go through harsh periods of time, layoffs at Airbnb, layoffs that get around. They've brought it back and are now doing well. And just for the sake of the people who work there, glad to hear it. Excited to see more as it comes out. Uh, two tiny things left, one of which is Roblox is going public. It is confidentially filed to go public. We knew this was coming about a week ago, I think. Some I think Reuters reported it. Anyways, Roblox, if you don't know, is uh, a bit like uh, Legos for kids, but in a digital environment, you can put things together, make little in-app games. Turns out like every child in the world before they graduate to Minecraft plays Roblox and it's made bajillions of dollars. 16 years old, long, really cool founding story, passion project that became a real company that's become a unicorn that's not going to go public. And if you want more on that, there is the EC1 over on Extra Crunch that we wrote last year all about how Roblox got off the ground. It is a deeper dive that you could ever possibly want to get in there and read that. And then finally, guys, uh, Ergo, which I know nothing about. Who knows something I about Ergo? I know nothing about. I think, I think we its put it in, name I is going to be Ear. So on the, on the stock market. So that's pretty insane. Uh, I believe it's some it, sort of headphone related thing. I don't know why we put okay. this in the notes. This is where we it's are in the notes, podcast. Though. It's in the yeah. notes. So this is, I feel this obligated. Is the, Someone put it here. <laughs> The moment, Just, I, the moment I said we have two more things and I saw the second one with Ergo, I was like, oh, I fucked up. I don't know how we're going to work something that one. All right, listen, guys, Ergo is going public, $100 million placeholder, ticker symbol Ear. It's going to be a big deal. Read all about it at TechCrunch.com. And with that, equity is out. I'll, I'll just add that I, I asked um, Charles Precursor kind of weighed in on the um, Charles, frenzy. Charles. Yes. Charles Precursor is definitely not a person. Charles oh Hudson God. at Precursor. I called him Charles Precursor? Yeah, that yes, was really funny. Charles, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's the tin apple. Shape. That's the tin apple of VC. Yeah, Tim Oh, Apple. my God. And Natasha goes, full Trump this week on equity. Yeah. No. 